Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Well, I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Good Easter? Yes, very nice. Thank you. Though my whole week wasn't as, um, what's the word? It wasn't as lucky as you in terms of um, of, of your your betting triumph. Well, you say that, and see the betting triumph. For listeners who weren't with us last week, impossible to imagine, but I won on the Grand National at 66 to 1, if you please, on a complete fluke. So much as one should never chase good luck, I then reinvested a tiny, tiny bit of that money in the Irish Grand National, which was yesterday and fell flat on my face so there we are that's my life as a as a gambler over I think um on a on another note the the horse my lucky horse uh Noble Yates was in fact paraded around the car park of the Lord Bagnall Inn in Lachlan Bridge which is not very far from where I live so he is very much the local hero and had his had his turn around the neighborhood did you go and see him in the car park I did not uh because i only read about it in the kilkenny people the day after but uh. i know i know i would have given him the best carrot i could find because <laughs> he's a very very good boy but i have to say my flirtation with um the world of of the turf i think may have come to an end i think it's time for me to as they say cash out well that's very very apropos um, and I'm afraid I brought it up with an ulterior motive because we are actually going to talk about gambling later, aren't we? And um, not not the fun side of it, I'm afraid. No, absolutely not. We'll be joined by Nat Segnet to discuss a trio of books about gambling from the industry that reels you in to the personal cost of addiction and also the cosmic lure of playing the odds. And then we have Kevin Brazil, who'll be taking us into the world of the mysterious and vicious they, as we take a look at the reissue of a 1970s novel with disturbing parallels to the here and now. 
But first, we are going to take a look into the world of gambling, uh, harmless for most of us, where we can have a flutter if we want to uh, and enjoy it, as Alex did, without consequences. But for some people, of course, it becomes an addiction and a life ruiner with all the damage, collateral and otherwise, that this entails. This week, Nat Segnit has reviewed three books on gambling for us from three rather different viewpoints, and we're very happy that he's here with us today to talk us through this complicated world. Nat, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start with Rob Davis's book, Jackpot, How Gambling Conquered Britain, which is a bold title. He's he's taking a, a legal and political and societal look, if I understand it right, at, at how gambling works, isn't he? And you start yeah. your piece by explaining what a VIP is in, in the gambling world. Can you, can you enlighten us to what that is? Well, it's a pretty ironic term. Uh, it, it means that you're a loser, essentially. You know, if you get into the habit of winning, you're liable to have your bets refused. On the other hand, if you hit a what they call a predetermined net loss threshold, in other words, start losing money by the bucket load, then you're likely to be granted VIP status. So you are very important only in the sense that you represent a serious revenue stream to the gambling companies so do they do they woo you well what it means in practice is that is that you'll be incentivized to keep gambling with perks like free bets or free tickets to sporting events and and you're likely to be assigned a vip manager your kind of handler who has discretion as to what perks he or she can tempt you with so as davis explains the job of the manager is to identify what he calls the triggers that will induce a kind of gambling frenzy in the VIP. In other words, extract minimum value out of them. So if you're a football fan, your VIP manager might take you to a game. Uh, You might be taken out to dinner. If you're into gardening, your VIP manager might woo you with a pot plant. I mean, it's quite quite an intimate relationship, as Davis uh, describes it. They might take you out to dinner or to a West End show. What a weird job to have, though. Yeah, really weird. To be a VIP manager, really strange it's pretty it's pretty strange it's kind of insidious i I mean i I suppose it's it's Mm. akin to the kind of free drink and food you might get in a las vegas casino but extended into your everyday life in in, as i say in a very intimate way outside of the explicit gambling context much as you know smartphone technology has allowed gambling to expand beyond the betting shop or racetrack into every little nook and cranny of your existence it's a it's a it's a slightly creepily intimate, chummy relationship. And the trouble is, is that it's done mm. indiscriminately. The only consideration is extracting maximum value out of you as a customer, regardless of your financial circumstances or mental health, your susceptibility to addiction, for instance. And so if the, the gambler were to say to their VIP manager, look, I'm getting a bit worried about this. I'm, I'm beginning to struggle. I'm not sure I should be doing this anymore. That would just be sort of cut off. And they'd say, oh, sure, don't worry. Let's have another drink or whatever. Well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, uh, uh, strictly speaking, uh, there are then protocols in place for the uh, customer to exclude themselves. Although as Davis uh, Davis reports there are many 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 instances where those rules those guidelines have not been followed. And you talk about the the smartphones because of course that makes it possible to gamble at anywhere at any yeah. at, at any time. Yeah. It's a problem isn't it but why is it such a problem that the legislation hasn't kept up with the technology which is basically online play? 
Well, I mean, the key piece of legislation uh, governing how gambling is regulated in the UK uh, is the Gambling Act of 2005, introduced under the Blair government. And that was designed in a classic Blairite deregulatory fashion to remove curbs on gambling and make the UK this kind of shining centre of the gambling industry. Um, so it was allowed, for instance, for the first time, there to be TV ads for sports betting, as opposed to just the kind of pools, for instance, um, online casinos and poker. Um, but the problem was the timing. This was 2005. Uh, and around that time, I don't even remember the, the big hoo-ha over super casinos, but that's what everyone was obsessed with. But mm. the elephant in the room was the internet. And of course, the first generation iPhone comes out two years later in 2007. And so no one at the time the act uh, 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 passed into law knew how profoundly smartphones would transform our lives or that within a few years, as you say, 24-7 access to this vast range of online casinos and betting exchanges would be available in everyone's pocket. So there was nothing in the legislation that could deal with the problems this would cause, in particular, the vast new marketing reach via social media and in-app advertising, etc., that would get around the regulatory framework attached just to TV advertising. So that's just a straightforward, they were just being too old fashioned because they can say, well, you can't have lots of TV ads before the watershed, but you can have as many as you want inside apps and online and all that. Is it just as simple as that? It's I mean, just a classic example of an, of an analog law in a, in a digital context, digital age. Still kind of in, in the world of those of betting shops, I suppose, high street betting shops, which must have taken a bit of a tumble, really, if everybody's sitting at home doing complicated bets on all sorts of things. And we just kind of associate it with, you know, little pads and tiny pens and people yes. just sort of <laughs> hanging around and watching the, you know, the 3.30 from Kempton or whatever. And it's, of course, not like that at all anymore, is it? No, I think I think David says it was by 2017, the take from on from web-based gambling had outstripped the combined take from um, high street betting shops. Uh, and casinos and racetracks. Uh, so yes, it's been completely transformed. Um, and tell us about these other things. There are various um, anachronisms like VIP, which obviously doesn't mean VIP in this context. What no. about the FOBTs? What are they and why are they important? The dreaded FOBTs, yes. So the FOBT stands for Fixed Odds Betting Terminal, and they were introduced, as I recall, in 1999. And they are um electronic vegas style electronic slot machines that offer a range of simulated games but the most popular is roulette and the problem again is in the potential for near continuous play so and, until the maximum allowable stake was reduced by law in april 2019 you could bet up to 100 quid every 20 seconds so they are just bottomless pits of profit for the gambling companies and there's no there's no curb if if i do it for four hours and i lose twenty thousand pounds there's there was there's no there's nothing stopping me there were curbs introduced in as i say in 2019 where the maximum allowable stake was 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 reduced to two pounds um but up until up until that point no there were very few curbs um and so by 2017, these things are accounting for more than half of the revenue earned by the UK's high street bookmakers. So I mean, Davis uh, cites a very uh, interesting case, which is that um, the 2005 Act allowed for no more than four of these FOBTs per shop. And the industry's response was very simple, open more shops. So there's this planning um, loophole, which classified gambling um, uh, betting shops as financial institutions. 
And so uh, the gambling companies are able to take over premises previously occupied by banks and building societies, which of course are deserting the high street in droves as internet banking takes off, particularly in more deprived areas. Um, and they can do that without uh, planning permission. So the result is what is known as, uh, as clustering, operators opening multiple branches on the same street, often in those really poor areas. Uh, so, you know, you might go to Newham in East London, the 25th most deprived uh, borough in the country, and there will be three branches of Paddy Power within a few yards of each other, because the profits from these machines were just staggering, vastly outstripping the retail space costs. So it's just simply worth opening. It's a very worth opening shops to to fit them in. Basically, it's a very clever and pragmatic way around um, the the kind of attempt at legislation, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the industry has proved itself extremely canny in getting around these these rather feeble regulatory efforts. So if Davis is providing, I mean, that's just for the UK, isn't it? He's providing the the legal and the social and the political background. That's right. And Patrick Foster. Um, in his book, which is called Might yeah. Bite, The Secret Life of a Gambling Addict. That's the first-hand account, isn't it? Can you tell us about his his trajectory, how he got into it? Well, I mean, research has shown that problem gambling often starts with a big win. And this was the case with Patrick Foster. So he was a highly talented cricketer. He played first-class cricket for Durham University and North Hans. But clearly, and by his own admission, there was something a bit... Uh, self-sabotaging in his nature, shall we say. So after a couple of years of, of patchy performances on the pitch and incidentally alcoholic ones off it, he's let go of by the club, uh, eventually gets himself an, an, uh, a job as a teacher at an um, independent boarding school in Oxford. But meanwhile, he develops a very serious gambling ha habit. And the critical point comes when he places an accumulator bet on six Champions League football matches. So as you may know, if you win an ACA, as they're informally known, all six of those results would have to go your way. And incredibly, they do. All six results go Foster's way, and he wins just short of £35,000. And so his story, like so many others in his shoes, is one of someone trying to chase the dopamine hit of that early win. He spends that thirty-five grand within six weeks. And with his smartphone to hand, he starts gambling during lessons and on school sports trips. He starts taking out the dreaded payday loans and funding the minimum repayments by borrowing from his friends and more perilously for his career from the wealthy parents of his pupils. So it's an incredibly tense plate spinning situation. Just when you think he can't get into more financial trouble, he does. Um, but what emerges from it in particular is the weird abstraction of disordered gambling it's just not about the sports anymore it's, it's like sky bet slogan is it matters more when there's money on it brilliantly evil slogan <laughs> yes that is fair. That, that's very uncloaked isn't it <laughs> really and it applies absolutely to to patrick foster who is a massive you know a, a talented sportsman and a massive sports fan loved his football and cricket and horse racing but he loses interest in those sports per se it's just about betting which is sort of further abstracted from its real world financial consequences so at the climax of the book i hope this is not too much of a spoiler but he, he wins fifty-eight thousand pounds on a series of horse races but it's not enough to pay off even the most pressing of his debts so he bets it all on a runner at the cheltenham gold cup which uh, is, uh, furnishes the title the horse is called might bite 
aptly named, if highly fancied. Uh, and he stands to win 200 grand, which would be enough to pay off those most urgent debts. Can you guess what happens next? Is that the plan that he wants to pay off all of his debts with it and stop? I think it's just the kind of climacteric. He reaches a point where uh, the, the, uh, the debts are so huge. Yeah. Uh, and uh, many of them are beginning to become pretty urgent. And of course, he's run out of friends and uh, pupil parents that he can sponge off so you know he's just in a desperate desperate situation so it, you know it's either win this or end his life which he comes very close to doing wow uh, presumably you get the impression that say by some extraordinary uh you know manipulation of the odds he had one say something had happened he'd been able to pay off all his debts he probably would have just started gambling again wouldn't he I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Mm. And, and, and undoubtedly would have found himself in a similar situation pretty quickly. I mean, it's, it is, it's the, 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 the cycle of a win and loss becomes so frenetic by the, by the climax of the book that you could imagine that within a fortnight, he'd be in just as much trouble. So in a sense that Mike Bite losing does, it saves his life in a, in a, in a sense by the skin of his teeth. Lucy, we were being quite lighthearted, weren't we, about my own recent uh, recent flutters? Mm. Because, of course, you know, I don't feel addicted to it. I don't, you know, actually think, wow, I've got a bit of money. It's like free money. And it's always struck me that that's one of the things that, that people chase in gambling. It's that idea that somebody will give you some money that you haven't worked for, which, of course, is you know what happens to the very wealthy um the privileged perhaps all the time but it doesn't happen to most people the vast majority of people have to work for every penny they they get and so it, it mm. must be something like just wanting that moment of actually just getting some money does that feel like the sort of kernel of what fuels gambling addiction it, it does, but the sense you get, as I say, the, the sense you get from Foster is that actually the money ceases to mean very much either. It's just the mm. abstracted hit of a win, and that fifty-eight thousand pounds is just sort of a number. It doesn't, re uh, it doesn't really represent the uh, the kind of salvation or potential ruination of him and his family. It's just this number, and actually, what matters is is the winning, detached from all of its causes and consequences. I thought it was very interesting, and I didn't know this, that you say, as you say, Alex, we were, we were, we were joking about your, your win, but, the, but as, you, as you were saying, now the problems often start with a win. Yeah. It's, not that you, it's not that you start by losing, it's that you start with a win, and then you go, oh, I want that again, I want that feeling again. Yeah, the high is so great, so sort of transformatively great that you spend possibly the rest of your life chasing it chasing the similar feeling which of course never comes there is a, a very brilliant film uh, which you, you may both know the small world of sammy lee which is a 60s film black and white and it's 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 about uh anthony newley is is sammy lee mm. and he just has a few hours and he's got to pay these debts off and so you, and you and it's just the marvelous claustrophobic kind of race around soho eluding these these people who are after their money mm. um and so we know of course that that this has been with us forever but it has a very modern face in these books as as you've been saying that it's it's a completely different thing but i suppose the emotions the fear must be the same I, I think that's true yes of course you know as i say smartphone technology has allowed it to pervade our lives entirely but the but the <clears throat> The, the, the kind of mechanics of addiction are the same as they've always been. 
And it's interesting that you say in the book, Foster, he's at pains to present himself like a normal bloke. Yeah. That's kind of how he talks and how he writes. And the sense is that this, this, this could happen to anyone. He, he, he really does say, look, I was just like anyone, but it, it, it seems like there are almost two of them. You call him a kind of Mr. Hyder like there's the normal bloke. And then there's the other one who he doesn't really acknowledge. I mean, it has to be said, it's quite a sort of upper bourgeois sort of normality. He's, you know, he's, he's the kind of bloke who's always on the beers and off to Chamonix for a, skiing holiday you know he, he says the, co- the cricket coaching courses he runs in the school holidays earn him good wedge yeah the, but the gambling self it's true the gambling self he presents to the outside world is highly normalized he likes a flutter occasionally takes it too far just as he occasionally drinks a few too many stellas but this excess is kind of culturally sanctioned it's the flaw that makes him normal but in the reality, he's in the grip of an addiction that's almost demonic. You know, I say he drinks risks like blood. He is perfectly prepared to destroy his relationships. He's got a very supportive girlfriend, very supportive parents. Got a nice, uh, he has nice career prospects, but just to ch- chase the dopamine hit of a, of, a, of, a, of a big win. And so, you know, there are, there are points, little gaps in the prose occasionally, which open up a view on this Mr. Hyde, this spiral-eyed, uh, 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 gambling addict who does not consider it fair despite what he processed to have to pay back his debts that he'd rather just put the money on the 340 at Doncaster how about DBC Pierre's book which is called Big Snake Little Snake an inquiry into risk that sounds like something kind of completely different again it's so different it's completely potty uh, and absolutely brilliant I loved it so ostensibly a non-fiction account of a spell Pierre spends in Trinidad where he's trying to film an, I don't know, film an ad featuring a parrot or something. It's kept rather pleasingly vague, the precise circumstances. But crucially, he gets into, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Play Way, which is the Trinidadian National Lottery. So the, the book is called Big Snake, Little Snake. And the little snake of the title is a baby pit viper he finds on his doormat in Trinidad. Now, in Playway, each number is assigned a symbol, and the symbol for 27 is a little snake. Uh, So the coincidence is enough for Pierre to put $10 on 27, and it wins. So the book then becomes this somewhat esoteric investigation into risk. His central thesis is that the what he calls the foreground of visible risk, the odds of winning at Playway, for example, is merely the discernible fringe of a chaotic as he says, background jungle of odds, cascades of risk and chance, which are traceable back to the origins of the universe. So, you know, his openness to risk is only consistent with the unlikeliness of life on Earth. Right. That's that's quite a big prism. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite a big prism. You know, this book is 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 a slender volume. Let's see, let's see. It's 159 pages long, but it is uh, pretty cosmic in its reach. Well, and you see, he's trying to sort of tune into chaos and, and try, trying to access, he calls it the world of vivid maths. Yes. This is, I mean, a polite name for it is magical thinking, isn't it? But that's that's sort of the point. <laughs> it is the point. Uh, it is unashamedly irrational, if not to say mystical, this book. But, you know, he does make something approaching a rational argument for his openness to risk. You know, so he conceives of, the book is set in Trinidad in all its, lushness and biodiversity and he calls this a place of vivid maths and he points out that places like that in his account have a often have a rich law of magic so for instance figures from trinidadian folklore like la diablesse which is this horrific 
cloven-footed seductress with a corpse's face hidden under her veil. They exist to help the locals contemplate what he calls the horrors of nature's mass. So, so kind of encoding the odds of sexual misadventure or disease in terms of sensory experience rather than statistics. So, and likewise, a belief in luck, he believes, in auguries like the little snake. Yeah, it may be a very human way to reach behind appearances and touch these mathematics of chance. So, you know, life is unfair and it's unfair in a manner determined by odds that you can't calculate because they're, as he says, bullied and spun by human actors or by conditions caused by their actions. Whereas to gamble in games of pure chance, like playway or roulette, is to leave that unfairness behind and, as he says again, drive up to that crystalline idyll of maths. So it's kind of to, it's, 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 it's to, it's to, it's to find out whether you're lucky or not, to see if you're favoured, if you're lucky, if you're alive. But except it isn't at all. No, this is not, I don't really feel like I'm dabbling in vivid maths when I buy a scratch well, card. Uh, but maybe I am. Yeah, well, in certainly in Pierre's terms, you are. It's to find out how lucky you are. It's, it's sort of to do with surrendering yourself then. Is that it? To the sort of, to chance? Surrendering yourself to, to yes, to pure odds not distorted by human action you know unless, unless unless it's correct but that cannot be true because because i'm sorry to be boring about this but they're not pure odds because you've made the decision to buy the ticket what, how much you earn is not is of course determined by how many people are contributing to the lottery but whether or not number 27 comes up is pure as, as long as the as long as the lottery has been conducted fairly that that is just pure chance right i see what you mean because in in terms of his cosmic prism buying a lottery ticket that's not pure risk or pure mass or anything that's a sociological thing if you decide to buy a lottery ticket that's not touching the face of mass or whatever he's well in mathematical terms it is because you are you, you are just exposed to pure odds to pure chance once you've bought it, but the fact that you've bought it is a, is a human and sociological thing. Well, that's that 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 I admit is true. Yes, Lucy, you you really don't sound like you've got much time for this theory. You sound <laughs> a little bit like this stuff and nonsense. He's he's sort of conceiving of it as 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 sort of sticking your finger into the sockets of the socket of chance, uh, risking that risking being shocked, but also checking checking to see whether you're alive or not. That's 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 the way he conceives. Of of, uh, of risk in these circumstances. Yes, and I was slightly playing devil's advocate, and I haven't read the book, and obviously he has to persuade of this. And I think the thing about seeing if you're alive or not is to see whether you get that jolt, isn't it? Yeah, which which Rob Davis, by his own admission, doesn't get. He's you know the 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 dopamine hit of risk. He says is alien to him, as I have to admit, it is to me too. You know. But but clearly not to, to to Pierre. But also in a way, not to Pierre. I can I can see the sense, not sense. He doesn't want sense, does he? I can see the appeal of his approach, because mm. there's nothing you can do about it. So you might as well endow it with um, with symbols and your own meaning, and just say let's have a go. Because so much of what's going on is not up to me. Why don't I throw this one in the air as well? And actually, it is yeah. quite a poetic way of looking at it it's just that there's a lot mm. of the underside of it which is what we were talking about which is not poetic at all so I have a, that's right you know what I mean I have a bit of trouble squaring squaring those approaches it's really interesting that he squares it because thinking about his last book which is a novel called Meanwhile in Dopamine City uh was all about the sort of um really the the very 
seedy underside of things like social media this idea that we are kind of being controlled through our machines and we don't realize what's happening to us and human experience is being kind of reordered Mm. and it's sort of very much against that kind of big business and algorithm and 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 that controlling idea which here he seems to see the good side in so he's he's kind of himself having to square some things that aren't necessarily Squareable. I, I suppose so. I mean, it's possibly slightly difficult to conflate um, the algorithms of big tech with Trinidadian Playway, which is just a which is just a local little uh, local numbers game. Um, but yes, I mean, he, he is he is trying to square a circle to a certain extent, and he does so in this uh, essentially mystical fashion. That's perhaps a, a much more human way of approaching it than actually the, the very cold big tech approach of, OK, let's put in fixed odds, betting terminals, let's make it um, available 24-7, let's get round everything so that people can yes. do it whilst being almost completely divorced from the the realities of what's happening, is, which is that they're losing thousands and thousands of pounds. So maybe, as I say, maybe it's much better to, to have your eyes open and go, don't know, anything could happen. I mean, I, and thanks to the TLS for uh, uh, assigning me this task, these three, these three books, because I do think that Pierre is, you know, potty as it is, is uh, genuinely complementary to the other two, which, are, but you know, Davis is deeply researched. The Patrick Foster is a pretty sort of moving first-hand account of gambling addiction, but neither of them quite, well, I mean, who could delve into the attractions of gambling in the way that Pierre does. And I think it just provides a perspective that is of use in to those trying to figure out how to um, how to address the problem of disordered gambling. I must say, I'm, I'm, for some reason, my mind's gone off on a tangent of, and imagining Patrick Foster and DBC Pierre kind of sitting and discussing this, yeah. perhaps over a Stella and the kind of idea of, you know, Patrick's sort of good wedge for cricketing and DBC Pierre's vivid maths. They seem completely, you can't imagine them talking to each other. They've got completely different experiences of the world. Yeah, I mean, yes, it would be a really unexpected collision, but I think quite a a fun one. (laughs) That's partly what it's about, isn't it? I just think that that unless you're a very good mathematician, we're we're very bad at calculating risk. Yes, yes. I mean no, notoriously so. I mean you might become a professional uh, poker player, and then there is a level of um, skill that that can be applied. It is possible to beat the house in those in those instances, but otherwise, no. We we are um, we're useless at it, uh, and that is much to the gambling company's benefit. So perhaps if we did have a takeaway, it's just let's be aware of how useless we are <laughs> at thinking about risk. Yeah and bet on the uh, Grand National once a year and then leave it at that. Well, thank you very much, Nat Segnit, for talking to us today. Come on the show, we'll delve into the world of K. Dick's dystopian novel, They, reissued 45 years after its first publication. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. Violent groups patrol the country, seeking out those guilty of crimes against the state, owning too many books, for example, or being single. Our nameless narrator keeps on the move, but can he stay ahead of the terrifying they? Kay Dick was a publisher, a writer of romance, an interviewer of contemporaries such as Stevie Smith and Ivy Compton Burnett, and the author of They, a slender dystopia that came out in 1977 and has now been reissued. Kevin Brazil has reviewed the novel and is here to tell us more. Welcome, Kevin. I, I, I believe you're joining us from Naples. Yes, I am. I'm having a little holiday um, in Naples and uh, just had a little swim in the in the bay this morning, which is pretty much the opposite, I guess, mood of um, the dystopian novel we're going to talk about. But um, I have to just come from where I am, I suppose. <laughs> you know, Kevin, you are allowed to have a holiday. We will, not, we will not accuse you of being one of the bourgeois uh, who is kind of satirised in this novel. Just tell us a little bit more about it. Tell, tell us about the novel and about Kay Dick herself. So, I mean, yeah, as you kind of said, Kay Dick was a writer and an editor and a publisher. Um, she was quite a trailblazer, really. At, at 26, she was the first woman director in English publishing um, at, at P.S. King and Son. Um, and she was a journalist at the New Statesman. 
and she published five novels between 1949 and 1962. As you said, they were more kind of romances and, and not dystopian fiction like they. And she also published um, a couple of quite remarkable books of literary interviews, which are always kind of fun to read with people like Ivy Compton Burnett, Stevie Smith, Olivia Manning, Maureen Duffy, you know, so she wasn't some kind of um, like forgotten or, or, or minor literary figure. If you kind of, you know, read some of the reminiscences that have been published um, when they has come out, you know, she's kind of at the center of this amazing network of experimental and queer and lesbian women writers. So it's really striking that when she published Day in 1977, that it kind of, you know, dropped off the radar. I mean, it got some horribly misogynistic reviews. I have a quote from one, Can I, if I can read it out. Mm. Um, one reviewer dismissed it as a fantasy sprouting from some collective menopausal spasm in the national- Wow. Oh my goodness. So, you know, wow. yeah, that kind of says it all. Um, and that was 1977. So, um, it's, I mean, why, why it provoked such a strong reaction other than standard misogyny, I don't really know, or homophobia. But anyway, it was, it was forgotten. And then we have um, the literary agent, Becky Brown, and the critic Lucy Scholes to thank, because in 2000, I think, they both sort of came across a copy of it um, and republished it, uh, I think, to pretty great acclaim. I mean, it's a it's an incredible dystopian novel, I think all the more powerful for being quite um, oblique. So if I might, will I just give a little description kind of of, of what it's like yes, as a novel? Yes, yeah. please. So it's, yeah, it's it's very oblique and, and kind of restrained. You kind of open with this um, unnamed and also I think ungendered um, character. I don't think you ever discover how they how they refer to their own gender anyway, which is a kind of, I think, something that might loop back to um, K. Dick's own take on gender. I think she once called gender, you know, this silly thing of no bloody account. But anyway, so you have this narrator, and they're they're kind of living by the coast down in Sussex, and they're visiting their friends, and um, all of a sudden you just get this reference to the books have been stolen. You know, it's this kind of glancing thing. Oh, my copy of dickens or whatever was stolen last night and it's never really kind of like commented on by the characters in the novel there seems to be a thing they're accepting and then you get these little allusions to oh they've burned the books at oxford and they've taken the paintings from the national gallery so as it kind of unspools you know this narrator you kind of realize they're just kind of living down by the coast and the south downs with all their friends and this kind of strange band called they, right? The, these people are always referred to as they mm. are kind of roaming the UK, burning books, defacing paintings, emptying museums. And as you slowly begin to realize, they're also kidnapping and torturing artists and writers who don't uh, stop producing their work. So a lot of the narrator's friends are opera singers or poets or painters. And if they don't give up what they're doing, they're taken away, their hands are amputated, they're burned, um, they're locked up and um, or even killed. But it what it makes this kind of novel, I think, so fascinating to me is this sense that the narrator and, and their friends sort of accept what is going on. And then you can kind of see that as on the one hand, trying 
to survive by just kind of withdrawing to their, you know, idyllic Sussex, Sussex lifestyle while the world burns around them. Or you might wonder, is, is Dick trying to make us think, well, is there a certain level of, I don't know, complicity or, or, or should they be fighting back against what is happening? Um, so I think, you know, in it's like less than 100 pages, it just packs in so much stuff that is, you know, so much so relevant today, you know, a government being hostile towards the arts. I won't push that too far. Um, but also, you know, when would you begin to fight back to defend, you know, culture or, or, or queer lifestyle or, or, you know, feminist ways of living? You know, it's a hard question um, that I think is kind of relevant today on, for unfortunate reasons, I suppose. Is it any work that the artists or the singers or the writers produce they just have to stop producing everything or is there some of it that's okay? Is it about a particular slant or a type of work? So, I mean, one of the strengths, I think, of the, of this novel as a piece of dystopian fiction is that a lot of those questions are left kind of unanswered. You know, it's not one of those dystopias where the world building is kind of takes up pages and you learn what the government agency responsible for prosecuting this, that or other is called, mm. you kind of have to imagine yourself. But I think on balance, it's as the novel unfolds, because it kind of takes place over a couple of weeks, you get the sense that it is creation and art in general that they are trying to attack. Now, the only thing that gives us a little bit of a twist, which is the kind of, kind of complicated but interesting thing to me is that you know, they don't have a problem. They, the the people destroying everything, they don't have a problem with television or pop music or even, I think, reggae, as, as it is more kind of mentioned specifically, because there is this, there's one scene where the narrator is, you know, strolling along the beach and she sees bands of, you know, people driving down from London within their horrible cars and they want to stay in these horrible um, you know, concrete hotels on the coast. And, and at one point she's like, they like to stay in, they like to swim in swimming pools as opposed to the sea. How awful, you know, and you hear their music playing and their, their you know, stupid lives watching television. That's really, that's, that's fascinating. So there is, as you point out in your review, there's, there's a really kind of uh, embedded sort of class sense in the book. And I just thinking of when I was introducing the book, I, I called the narrator he, and I absolutely assumed it was a man. Uh, and of course, I had no reason to do that, uh, which in itself is kind of weird and interesting, isn't it? Well, I would say it's interesting because even because I assumed it was a woman or, or, or someone who might identify as a woman. But when I went back and looked at it carefully, there, there was no reference to their gender that I could see. Um, no, so right. I don't know I, I, so I don't know why you thought it was a man and I thought it was a woman. Um, but anyway. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, there is a kind of uh, strange fluidity to the book in all sorts of ways. But this class sense, I mean, you again, you, you focus on this idea that the narrator is describing a very comfortable cultural world that also seems especially English. And you mentioned Virginia Woolf and Duncan Bell secluded in their beautiful gardens. I wondered how much you thought this was an unconscious reflection of privilege and how much it's a criticism that, that Dick herself was making. I think, I, I mean, I can't, I can't say whether it was conscious or unconscious. I think maybe from Dick's own life, 
you might think of her as someone who had, you know, a lot of, say, cultural capital, you know, living in Hampstead and working and publishing and, and knowing everybody worth knowing. But, you know, ended her life living in a flat, a basement flat in Brighton and selling off bits of her estate because she had no money. So mm. it's kind of interesting like that. I think I think that the ambiguity is what makes it a more interesting novel for me, both uh, in thinking about, you know, dystopia, but also for thinking about class and queerness. There, you know, there is, as you said, this long kind of romanticized image of, you know, Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville West and, and all these people at Garsington or Sissinghurst, you know, and making beautiful Omega workshop furnishings. And all of that is beautiful. You know, I, I in the reopened Courtauld, they have a sort of um, Omega workshop room with one of Duncan Bell's carpets. And, it, you know, it's so beautiful and amazing. And you think you just might want to live that life. <laughs> But, you know, it is it is very it, it was and for many people still is a life just for the queer upper class. Mm. And, and if you kind of develop a sort of opposition, as seems to happen for the narrator between, you know, culture, queerness and an enlightened lifestyle on the other and the working class and awful taste and, you know, um, destroying the environment on the other what gets lost is the idea of queer working class people who of course cross that that bridge um in addition to you know kind of being imagining that you know things like pop music aren't culture in themselves so i think i think i would like to think it's intentional because then it stops the novel being this kind of like you know we'd we'd all love a story of you know whether you're committed to literature as as i imagine people on this podcast are or queer people, you know, it's easy to think when the, you know, world starts to end, we would be only the victims and we'd never be complicit um, in anything. But I, but I think by exploring complicity, it makes for a sort of more interesting take, I think. Yes, you you also make the point, don't you, that there's, there's aside from these, there are individual acts of resistance um, in the book, but there is a kind of general passivity in the face of this, essentially what's totalitarianism. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it makes you think, and it has certainly made me think over the past couple of months, you know, what would I do, you know? And and one of the things that has made this novel, I think, so, I think, speak to the moment is one of the things I've been reading a lot is um, reflections by artists and, and theater directors and writers in Russia, you know, and this question of you know, are they going to be the one who's going to speak out against the war and risk going to jail? Or, you know, are they going to just try and survive and get by? And you kind of think, I'd love to think that, you know, whether in the world of they or in our world right now, you know, I would be the one who would risk going to jail or getting my hand cut off to to keep writing or protest against the government. But maybe I wouldn't, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's that... Um, that the novel explores and that's really captivating I think for something so short to be able to do that. It's it's really also interesting to think of it coming out in 1977 now as uh, I would say the senior member of this particular bit of the <laughs> podcast and I say that I say that in purely age terms I remember 
this it was the silver jubilee in 1977 at my school we had to we had to tape our rulers up our wooden rulers mark you uh with colored crepe paper and go and wave them at the queen who drove part through our town so there was this and it was street parties it was also the end of well coming to the end of of, of the punk era so it's really interesting to think of it coming out in that particular climate uh and yet as you say kevin still pretty relevant to well another jubilee year in england well yes i mean just what you said right there about having to carry your rulers with the crepe paper along the streets reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in the novel which is when the narrator just comes across um bands of they kind of spread out all over the hills in the south downs holding up these poles and just doing these Mm -hmm. kind of weird dance-like maneuvers and it's never explained you know what they're doing and so I mean I don't think it could be as so accurate as as comparing street children holding rulers on the street to that bit in the scene but that was just the funny thing there was a sense of sort of carnival I suppose yes in the air I guess it's something something like that it was possibly quite jingoistic sense of carnival yeah or or the ways in which you know there's things that you might not want to get swept up in as an individual you know I'm not I'm not gonna join this national festival because I don't know is it a bit jingoistic but Mm. if everyone around you starts doing it and you're invited to join the parade or join the party people do get swept up um, in in a collective way so that I think will probably start happening again over this jubilee we'll see can I ask a question at the risk of stereotyping myself can I can I ask about gardens because it's it's really interesting to me about gardens and nature and, and sort of how they're seen. I mean, nature in inverted commas, because part of the privilege that you say of the of the people who are sort of, um, you know, the people who are secluding themselves, cutting themselves off is that they have these beautiful gardens and they create them. And it's the idea of the garden as a kind of refuge from everywhere else. But there's also the idea, which is a very egalitarian idea that the countryside is for everyone. And now the idea that the countryside and the planet is for everyone, if you take it as far as Extinction Rebellion, that's quite a radical idea. It, does, does the countryside and the garden kind of feature in that way in the book? Yeah, I, I think it features in both those ways, again, in, in, in that kind of characteristic ambiguity as it has, that the novel has. So on the one hand, you've got, you know, all these opera singers and poets and writers, you know, quite literally tending to their garden while the world burns. And, you know, they're these big kind of manor houses and country estates. But then, you know, one of the ways in which the narrator finds some kind of of peace is when they go walking just in nature itself. So, you know, in forests and in hills or just along the beach. And, you know, the beach is kind of for everyone that's kind of why it's such a utopian place so I think it has both ideas of nature you know n- nature as the garden which doesn't have to be exclusive but sadly kind of has got some of that connotations at least in in the English class system but also nature as the universal thing that is for everyone um yeah and I think it's just one of those ambiguities that makes it really fascinating mm. I disappeared down a little bit of a, a rabbit hole finding out about Kay Dick. And uh, she she lived for, for many years with another novelist, Kathleen Farrell. 
and I discovered that they were part of something called the Lady Novelists Anti-Elizabeth League. Okay, tell us more. It was people not, you know, as we've been talking about the Jubilee, it wasn't an anti, anti-monarchist thing. It was Elizabeth, the novelist Elizabeth Taylor. And it was a group of women novelists who were united in their dislike of Elizabeth Taylor, who, of oh. course, is now one of those novelists who, again, you know, via the power of reissue, has had, is enjoying this, this great kind of heyday. I mean, you know, people have loved her for many years, but she's being sort of rediscovered. But it was so interesting to me to think of these kind of factions in women's writing and put together with what you were saying earlier, uh, Kevin, about, you know, the, the, the hideous notion of the menopausal spasm of a review is <laughs> kind of creates this fascinating idea of a, a sort of territory of, of of women's writing, which I know is one of the things that 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 you know you're an you're an expert on, aren't you? Well, I I actually I love that because one of the things that it does is by showing that you know boundary pushing pushing women's writing in in the mid twentieth century in Britain, and I do think Elizabeth Taylor is boundary pushing in her own quiet way. You mm. know, I. I, I kind of love the, I don't know, the sub, this kind of just the subtlety of the lies that, that you also get um, uh, in, in other novelists. But that, that, you know, that her, that she's at war, her and maybe Anita Bruckner, you know, in one corner, are at war with like um, Kay Dick and Bridget Brophy mm. um, and Maureen Duffy and also people, you know, like Anne Quinn. Uh, who's Berg, you know, actually, whose novel Berg, which is this very kind of experimental Brighton novel, um, one of the characters in they is called Berg. So I kind of think that must be a reference. Yes. Or or someone like Christine Book Rose, you know, who wrote this amazing, another amazing forgotten dystopia out, which I don't mm. think hasn't been republished at all, but is this kind of race reversal dystopia where Britain in the future, um, people who are quote unquote white are ruled by people who are quote unquote black. Um and I think that, you know, that there's so many of these novels that are still not republished and that these that the scene was big enough, I suppose, to have fuse is actually a sign of how vibrant the scene was, you know. And I still I think it's yeah, still a little forgotten, although all so many of those writers, unfairly so. I mean, dystopian fiction, as, as you're kind of pointing out there, is, it's been with us for a long, long time. And at some level, it always tells you about what the anxieties and preoccupations of both the writer and audiences and the age are. Um, and I think of this because I've just read Sandra Newman's The Men, which is a novel about um, anybody with a Y chromosome disappearing in an instant. Um, and it's been pretty controversial ahead of publication because it, 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 you know, it essentially does divide the world into into pretty kind of clear sort of gender binaries uh and I wonder whether I mean what you think about this whole kind of territory in general about what dystopian fiction tells us beyond that kind of you know anxiety about you know apocalypse we think of it as just sort of apocalypse fiction but it always seems much more subtle than that to me yeah I mean I think I mean, I haven't read the men, <laughs> read the men. I mean, I've read many men, probably too many men, um, but I haven't read San- Sandra Newman's the, the Men, so I won't comment on that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, I think you're totally right to say dystopias, whether they're projected into the future or in alternative versions of the present, they're all about our anxieties now. 
And I think there's also kind of an interesting thing that we also read into dystopias what our anxieties are as readers. So we've got this novel yes. published in 1977, which, as you say, could have come out of a very different moment, maybe, you know, 1970s decline. I mean, another work that it reminds me of just thinking of it is Derek Jarman's film, Jubilee, where you've got this kind of dystopian version of Britain and, you know, everything's burning down and, and everything. But we're here now in 2022 and we're reading in things like, you know, the ecological collapse, we're reading in things like the war in Russia, we're reading in things like a certain government trying to bring down the BBC and, and cut, you know, cutting back culture in the UK. So I think it can be like a screen in which we see both the, the, the concerns of the writer at the time, but also readers across history. Yes, definitely. As we've sort of mentioned, it's quite different. They is quite different from the rest of mm. Kay Dick's work. I mean, do you should we read more of her? Do you think should we should we read some of some of her other novels? Be they ever so different? Well, I, I think one should always read. You know, just you should never know. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to say no, no, don't. That is very much the motto of this podcast. <laughs> no, 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 you know, nothing wrong with an afternoon with a book and a cup of tea that maybe might have been the most lively afternoon in your life. Um, I certainly <laughs> want to go back and read the earlier ones, just even just to understand why there was such a change. I mean, there was such a gap. You know, her last of her quote unquote, first phase novels came out, I think in 62, and then they mm. came out in 77. So that is a bit of a gap. Um, I think we should definitely read those anthologies of interviews with other women writers of the time. I think that would be some way, as you say, to get into like, you know, the anti Elizabeths and all these kind of, you know, I think still overlooked writers. But the book of hers that I would like to read is, is her last book, actually, The Shelf, which I think came out in 82 or 84. Oh, I guess we can't fact check the podcast, but it was a couple of years later. Um, and it's about a woman just kind of remembering an affair she had with a married woman, you know, maybe some 20 years ago. And I think just because, you know, I, I think I read a description, I think maybe in Lucy Scholes's profile of K. Dick, about how it explores, you know, lesbian desire as actually quite damaging and destructive and I think in that sense perhaps all the more real and it sounds like it has something in common with day of exploring yeah of having just kind of you know putting ambiguities and ambivalences at the center of you know both the novel and queerness and which I think is more fascinating perhaps because it's more true rather than simple kind of stories of everything is awful or Everything is fantastic. That is definitely one one for the reading list. I have actually just managed to fact check this. It's 1984. Of course, another dystopian year, yes. obviously. Um, and I, mm. down my rabbit hole, I was also reading about Kathleen Farrell and I discovered that she was the author of a, a wonderfully titled book, Mistletoe Malice, which just sounds, I mean, <laughs> who could pass up a book called Mistletoe malice so that's I, one for christmas it, it, she, uh, it yeah. must be it must I'm, be i'm pu putting that in for a family christmas you know just to help me get through that however bad <laughs> i've never felt a little tell malice yet anyway. i mean <laughs> not yet kevin you you have you have mentioned her a couple of times but but we should also just say a, a big uh praise for lucy Scholes that she does so much of this really interesting work in in these you know semi-forgotten if not entirely forgotten titles I mean we're we're very glad that that she and and the the literary agent 
found this book, aren't we? And and Becky Brown as well, um, who's yes. who's a agent of Curtis Brown, I think. I mean, it, yes, it, it's a great story in itself. I think um, both of them sort of came across it at the same time. I think Becky Brown just came across it in a in a Oxfam books or something, and Lucy Scholes read an obituary and and ordered up all the books from I think the London Library, and then they just sort of crossed paths and emailed each other, being like, "I discovered this novel." I've just discovered this novel and and brought it out. Um, so yeah, it just goes to show, you know, this these amazing queer novels that completely speak to our present could just be gathered yeah. dust in some secondhand bookshop somewhere. So get searching, everyone. Yes, exactly. We might we might put that out. We do occasionally set out our listeners' challenges, don't we, Lucy? And 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 that will be one of them. Just. Go and read a book. Go to a bookshop. Yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid, Kevin, you've kind of set us the challenge. Go to Naples. I quite like to go to Naples. Are you reading a lot of <laughs> Eleanor Ferrante while you're there, or am I just typecasting ridiculously? No, I, I, I decided to lean in. I have um, Elena Ferrante's The Lying Life of Adults in my hand, actually, as we speak. But I'm also reading um, probably the opposite in tone, which is Curzio Malaparte's The Skin, which is set in Naples just after it was liberated by the Allies in 43 or 44 mm. and that is a well it's set in real history but that is a dystopian novel let me tell you um, so a lot of great Naples fiction to read which I'm enjoying well have have a wonderful time and, and amongst the reading don't forget to you know go to the gelateria I mean that's also important and the pizzeria and the pizzeria thank you so much for joining us that was completely fascinating thank you very much for having me that's all we have time for this week our thanks go to Nat Segnet and Kevin Brazil Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week. But for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. 
with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.